Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's program, with the furor erupting nationwide over the Conservatives' legislation to increase the surveillance powers of law enforcement agencies, we'll speak with Lindsay Pinto of the group OpenMedia.ca about existing threats posed to internet privacy. We'll hear some thoughts from York University scholar David McNally about the contradictions surrounding communist China's rise as a state capitalist power, and we'll hear from Toronto Star columnist Tom Wolcombe about a controversial report calling for spending cutbacks in Ontario. First, here are the alert headlines for the week of February 23rd, 2012. The Quebec student strike grew this past week, with around 31,000 students participating in a protest against the government's plans to double tuition over five years. Students have clashed with police since the start of the strike, and over 40 arrests have been made. Free Education Montreal argues that the tuition hikes would, quote, deny 30,000 students from low-income families their right to education, unquote. Students voted to strike rather than lobby or petition the government as the most effective method in getting the government to recognize education as a right and not a luxury. The federal government is cutting nearly $1 million in program funding to the Ontario-based NGO Palestine House. The government money is used to fund English language training and immigrant settlement services for over 1,000 newcomers a year. The organization received a letter from Immigration Minister Jason Kenney in December explaining how they, quote, have a history of taking positions that could be interpreted as extreme or supportive of terrorists and terrorism, unquote. Palestine House raised issue with Kenney's assessment and even said they would remove a logo that outlines Palestinians' ancestral lands from their website to appease the minister. Kenny maintained that their funding would not be renewed when it expires at the end of March. Public Safety Minister Vic Taves received a backlash last week over his government's Protecting Children from Internet Predators Act. Last week, the WikiLeaks Twitter account was created to post personal information about Taves' life, including details of his divorce. Shortly after, the hacker group Anonymous targeted Taves, saying they will release information on him unless he scraps the bill and steps down as public safety minister. In an interview with CBC, Taves said he was unaware that the bill would extend the powers of police officers to allow them to access individuals' personal information without a warrant. Thousands of Greeks protested the looming threat of deeper austerity measures on Sunday, one day before government met to discuss the terms of a second bailout. At the time of writing, the Eurozone governments remained divided on several key conditions of the new loan. Many Greek workers, pensioners, parents and students have fiercely opposed the terms of the bailout, which includes cutting the minimum wage by 22% and pensions by 15%. Earlier this month, workers held a two-day general strike against the reforms and health workers took control of a hospital in defiance to authoritarianism of imposed austerity measures. 
To counter Israeli apartheid week, activities organized on university and college campuses in late February or early March, Israel has launched a public diplomacy and awareness campaign to present the Israeli point of view. The campaign is meant to be an informal dialogue between government-appointed spokespersons, such as actors or new immigrants, and students on campuses in North America, Europe, and Africa. The Israeli government maintains that all spokespersons are volunteers who are allowed to speak their minds freely. The government has said, quote, it is not our place to tell people what to say, but how to say it, end quote. Hundreds of thousands marched in over 57 cities in Spain last Sunday to protest the country's new labor reforms. The Spanish government recently approved a package of reforms that attacked organized labor in the country. New labor laws now make it easier for companies to fire employees, pull out of collective bargaining agreements, and adjust workers' wages and schedules. Unemployment in Spain is among the highest in the Eurozone at 23%. The United States and Britain have called on Israel to refrain from launching an attack on Iran. While all three countries believe Iran is attempting to develop a nuclear bomb, despite Iran's insistence to the contrary, the U.S. and Britain are urging Israel to stick with the international sanctions against Iran, arguing now is not the time to attack. None of the three countries have ruled out military action. At the time of recording, United Nations nuclear inspectors were in the middle of a two-day visit in Tehran to gauge whether Iran is indeed developing nuclear weapons. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left for the week of February 23rd, 2012. Another world is possible, but is another war probable? On Saturday, February 25th, from 10.45 a.m. to 5 o'clock p.m. in Toronto, attend a teach-in on the geopolitics of war and sanctions against Iran. Panelists will include, among others, author and activist Eve Engler, Yakov Rabkin of the University of Montreal, and Robert Latham of York University. The teach-in will take place in room 2102 Sydney Smith Hall at the University of Toronto, 100 St. George Street. A donation of $10 is requested, or pay what you can. Calling all progressive artists, cultural workers, and media practitioners in or around Montreal. On February 26th, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., you're invited to meet and share with artists and writers who attended the first International Conference of Progressive Culture, the ICPC, in Manila, Philippines, in July 2011. Artists from around the world met under the theme People's Art, Shaping the Society of the Future, and established a People's Art Network. The meeting will take place in Suite 110 of the Immigrants' Workers' Center at 4755 Van Horn, in Montreal. For more information, check out the website at peoplesart.info. The NDP leadership candidates debate in Toronto will take place March 1st from 7 to 10 p.m. in rooms 2-212 and 2-213 of the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at 252 Bloor Street West. The debate will begin with opening statements by the candidates, followed by Socialist Caucus panel questions, and then audience questions, ending with closing statements. Everyone is welcome. Free admission. Doors open at 6 p.m. 
The Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly will be hosting a coffee house on sex worker solidarity on March 4th at 2 o'clock p.m. at Beit Zatun, 612 Markham Street in Toronto. This coffee house discussion will address how acting in solidarity with sex worker rights organizations and supporting sex workers in their efforts to improve their working conditions and end criminalization are important in the movement towards expanding labor rights for all. That's all for Around the Left for this week. Public Safety Minister Vic Taves has been subjected to an onslaught of condemnatory feedback regarding his decision to table a bill in the House of Commons geared toward protecting children from online predators. Uh, As featured in last week's alert broadcast, civil liberties defenders have serious reservations about how this legislation would give law enforcement agencies the power to monitor the online habits of Canadians without a judicial warrant. To broaden the discussion as to how Internet users are finding their freedoms curtailed and about what can be done about it. We are joined on the line by Lindsay Pinto. She is the communications manager for openmedia.ca, which is a uh, grassroots organization that safeguards the possibilities of the open and affordable Internet. So uh, welcome to Alert, Lindsay. Hi, thank you. Okay, could you maybe just tell us uh, briefly a little bit more about your organization and uh, the sorts of concerns that you're uh, you're tackling currently? Sure, absolutely. Well, we are a national nonpartisan organization that, uh, as you said, safeguards the possibilities of the open and affordable Internet. So our work makes sure that Canadians can be involved in the policymaking process when it comes to Internet governance. Uh, and to make sure that the Internet is, is remains open and affordable and accessible to all Canadians so that stays possible. So, of course, when these online spying bills came out, um, these bills that would allow warrantless surveillance of, of Canadians' personal information um, electronically, we were very concerned that this would turn the Internet into something of a closed and paranoid space where you know a vast range of authorities would be able to gather the information of any Canadian at any time uh, and would essentially change the very fundamental nature of, of the Internet that we've come to know and love. Mm-hmm. Now, the press is reporting that uh, he seems to be backpedaling a little and is uh, indicating he was unaware of how far-reaching the legislation would be in terms of uh, invading privacy and is favoring amendments. So I guess I'd like to ask, first of all, uh, maybe your thoughts about how credible it is that a former lawyer and auditor general could be in the dark about the the bill he's moving forward. And secondly, are there any amendments to this bill that could conceivably satisfy you? Well, essentially, like, first of all, it's very offensive that we would have a minister uh, in the House of Commons who would use such divisive language, you know, such uh, your best or your against us language to so vehemently defend a bill that he does not understand the contents of, admittedly. So we, you know, looking at that, looking at the fact that he essentially characterized hundreds uh, of thousands of Canadians, the privacy commissioners and ombudspersons across Canada, civil society altogether as, as people who are standing with the, the, the child pornographers is, is hugely offensive just on its own and coupled with the fact that he didn't even realize the, the extent to which a range of authorities could surveil Canadians under these bills is just kind of add to the, uh, adds to the <laughs> anger that we have for that. 
So in terms of amending this bill, and we've seen the government take steps back once a lot of this stuff has come to light, uh, and as Canadians have been more and more engaged online, we have over 100,000 Canadians who've signed a petition at stopspying.ca. Uh, we have tons of people tweeting uh, on Twitter using the hashtags Telvic everything and, and tweeting them various uh, mundane details of their personal life to highlight how excessive these bills are uh, and a lot of outcry and, and rage in the media. Uh, we've seen the government step back and they are considering entertaining amendments, which is very soft language, uh, and, and they haven't really promised anything. Uh, but they are considering entertaining amendments based on all of this outcry. And as, as far as that goes, I mean, we would really like to see something. If this bill is going to go through, we, we would prefer that it didn't. But if this bill is going to go through, that it would have things like warrants, court oversight, deterrence from abuse, everything that the privacy commissioners are asking for, everything that we've been asking for since it was originally announced that the Conservatives would be uh, putting forward these kinds of bills, which they did during election time. Uh, they announced that, sorry, during election time, the bills were just released. Um, and, and we essentially want to make sure that Canadians' privacy online and our digital economy is protected. Hmm. Could you maybe, uh, like focusing on that backlash, uh, that uh, the, the, the fight back, um, do you uh, consider you know, any other initiatives uh, coming down the line that could uh, potentially stop this legislation, uh, amendments or no? Uh, initiatives like like uh, along the lines of citizen outcry, along yeah. the lines of well, I mean, Canadians have been getting engaged. You know, as I said, in a really huge variety of creative ways, um, and it, it is really interesting to see what's happening. The the media is coming out with a whole variety of different articles about the bills, about Vic Taves, about uh, the WikiLeaks account that has been attacking Vic Taves somewhat relentlessly on Twitter, um, and and about just the the all the communication that's been going on of all in, in all different levels of discourse. Uh, we've seen experts uh, in privacy and legal experts coming out. In uh, we have a mini documentary on our website actually, where they come out and they they talk about the details of the bill and why it's so terrible. We have uh, a volunteer who who sent us an email saying, you know. I'm going to make these awesome you know, PSAs for you guys and about the, the online spying bill, uh, and he did. And when those came out a few months ago, they were aired, uh, they were picked up by national media, and it was really, really amazing to see you know, the way the word was spread. So we're expecting more and more of these kinds of initiatives, more and more you know, citizen engagement, making sure that as many people as possible know what's happening with these bills and knows how to how to act. Knows that you know spreading the word does make a huge difference. That emailing your MP makes a huge difference, and that adding your name to the petition at stopspying.ca makes a, a huge difference as well. It means a lot of people behind one message, and those numbers do matter. Now, it, it seems as if Lindsay, your group is concerned about protecting the, the privacy of citizens, and I, I'm just wondering if you if there's any uh, discomfort uh, that might come out of uh, the idea that. Uh, the attacks uh, against Mr. Taves are springing from the exposure of personal details of his life. Uh, I mean, if, is this perhaps a question of two wrongs making a right, or is there any comparison whatsoever? Well, I mean, it is, it is very difficult to endorse that kind of behavior. At the same time, I mean, it does draw attention to something that, that critics of privacy uh, and something that Mr. Taves was, was missing, which is that privacy isn't just about having something criminal to hide. None of the details of Taves' personal life that have been exposed thus far have been things that weren't already on the public record. It was just things that were underreported. 
So really, we're, while we're seeing the fact that, you know, this, this minister is being very publicly shamed, and, and that is something that is, you know, not, uh, not necessarily the best kind of conduct, it does show that that's the case, and it shows that that's the case using uh, as a target somebody who's trying to put forward bills that will essentially erode Canadian civil liberties and privacy online and, and fundamentally change, possibly forever, the medium that allows us to communicate in an open and democratic uh, way and share our culture throughout Canada. So, I mean, really, the problematic nature of these bills does seem to a great degree to um, justify to some degree, at least, the, the, the type of uh, discourse that's going around around Victaves. Mm-hmm. I, I just wonder if there's like maybe one last point, like if you could speculate a little, what are the, the implications that you see it of having, uh, with the technology being able to expose more details about uh, people's lives, uh, of living in, in a surveillance society, how could that uh, cripple our, our society? Well, I mean, we've seen many examples of, of, and especially international examples, of people changing their behavior uh, because they know that they're being watched, and people do do that. And we've also seen examples very specifically in the UK where they have a very, they have very invasive surveillance laws, but they also have a very strong reporting mechanism for abuse of those laws, which we wouldn't have under these under this bill. Um, where they've seen this surveillance-type legislation that's supposed to be used to catch, you know, really big, bad criminals being used to make sure that kids are going to school in the right districts and, and things like that. I mean, it's, it's completely outrageous abuse of, of power in that situation. So, I mean, really, we're, we'll be seeing a very fundamental shift in terms of our behavior online, in terms of the way that authorities are able to, to control what we do, and it'll move Canada in, in a direction that I don't think that we'd be very comfortable going as a democracy. I mean, this is the kind of, of legislation that started what uh, what we now know is, is, is really terrible, uh, an excessive surveillance in places like Syria and China, where the Internet is used to, to quelch dissent, essentially. So that's not necessarily what will happen here. But that's def- we're definitely taking a step towards that with this bill and opening the door for abuse. And we, frankly, we need to make sure that codified into our laws, our deterrence for abuse. Okay. Well, Lindsay, uh, we really appreciate uh, your sharing these uh, views with us on a very compelling subject. Uh, Thanks for joining us on Alert. Thank you. And I've been speaking with Lindsay Pinto. She's the communications manager for openmedia.ca, a grassroots organization that safeguards the possibilities of the open and affordable Internet. It would appear that the People's Republic of China is among the most resilient countries in the world when it comes to surviving the economic devastation engulfing the globe. A recent piece in Economist magazine described China, a country run by the Communist Party, as the prime case of contemporary state capitalism. What is the basis for the robustness of the Chinese economy, and how does this affect the global situation generally? David McNally is a political science professor of York University in Toronto and one of the world's leading scholars on Marxist theory. He is involved with numerous social justice organizations and the author of six books, including his most recent, Global Slump, The Economics and Politics of Resistance. He visited China recently and over the last year and is back to report on his observations. Uh, So hello, Professor McNally. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on your show. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the trip you recently took and, and uh, some of your observations that you bring back from that? Yes. Well, I, I went in uh, October uh, of last year, and I uh, visited three cities, uh, Hangzhou, uh, which is where I attended a conference, then uh, Nanjing, which is the former historic capital prior to Beijing, and it's a city of about uh, 14 million people, and then finished my visit uh, in Shanghai, really because I wanted to see what the contemporary face of arguably the most dynamic center of capitalist growth and development in the world uh, today looks like, and Shanghai, a city of 24 million people, and the financial center of China uh, seemed like an appropriate place uh, to do that. I'll offer you a few sort of general observations, and then we can explore the ones that are, that are of most interest to you. But to begin with, uh, I was overwhelmed by the sight of construction everywhere. It really didn't matter where I was, whether I was traveling by highway between one city and another or moving around within a city. Everywhere you look, there are cranes, and those cranes are part of massive apartment building construction, condominium construction, office towers, bank towers, and so on. There is this sense of frantic and frenetic uh, industrial activity by way of construction, the very physical landscape being transformed all the time with one of the most massive and intensive building booms in world history, really. Uh, having said that, the other part of it is that that boom has produced a real estate bubble, which was clearly starting to burst while I was there. Property values are starting to decline, in some cases quite rapidly, and that is producing a variety of social conflicts as well. Uh, and nevertheless, there is a sense that the Communist Party leadership so far is managing to control or to deal with most of the social discontent, although I should add that quite often it is making enormous concessions to workers and peasants who do revolt against the massive inequalities which are happening. And that would be my final observation. The inequalities are extraordinary. I witnessed the real scale of a very large Chinese middle class, which is frankly addicted to shopping in all the worst ways that we imagine uh, the upper middle classes in North America to be. Uh, but, of course, alongside that, there is the, also the enormous poverty of sweatshop labor and rural China that uh, constitutes, therefore, the fact that China now has the most uneven distribution of income in the world. So I think all of those, Michael, the frenetic building, the fact of the real estate bubble, which is starting to burst, and the incredible polarization of wealth and poverty would be among my most powerful uh, sort of observations. Uh, could may, maybe let's uh, take 
your take on that last point? I mean, how could a, a nominally communist party, uh, which is the, the government of the country, be uh, generating a uh, such huge polarizations in uh, economic and, and standard of living levels? Well, I think the first thing we need to recognize is that the so-called communism, and I'm putting it in quotes, of the Chinese leadership was always really about a straightforward uh, economic nationalism. By that I mean they saw their job as the industrial and economic development of China. They were never communist in the old 19th century sense of that term, by which we mean uh, dedicated to the alleviation of social inequality and to creating forms of economic democracy in which workers and peasants would have direct control and self-management. That was never their project. Their project was industrial development. And in the late 1970s, they came to the conclusion that the Stalinist model that they had inherited from the Russia of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, that is to say, one in which the state, a bureaucratic and highly repressive authoritarian state, tries to manage and direct the economy uh, according to plans, they recognized that that model was not working. It had come, was coming apart in the Soviet Union, and it was not working for them. So they shifted towards a more and more market-based model, opening up China to foreign investment, creating special low-wage economic zones that multinational corporations could use to exploit cheap Chinese labor, and getting rid of those social protections that had been in place. Most Chinese people, for example, today have no health care coverage. None. In that sense, on something like health care, they've gone to the American model. You get what you can pay for. And so with that decision in the late 70s to open up to foreign investment, to become a market-based economy, not one uh, governed by social protections like health care and so on, they (laughs) really let in all the vices of Western capitalism while still keeping their fairly centralized, undemocratic political structures. And what they did by opening up, of course, was to allow foreign investment to really drive their economy. And so with the largest reserves of cheap labor in the world, it's not a surprise that foreign investment poured in. Uh, I mean, we've seen just a, a, a huge... Uh, flow of foreign investment now for 30 years into China. But not surprisingly, it has done what the Western capitalist model does everywhere, which is to say it has created uh, Chinese millionaires and billionaires. But at the same time, it has also created hundreds of millions of poor factory workers, many of them employed by multinationals doing things like we've now seen some exposés around making iPhones and iPads and so on in terrible labor uh, conditions. And it's caused also a huge exodus of hundreds of millions from the countryside when they can no longer afford to live on their farms. So you really do have 
uh, a, a pattern of capitalist development under the guise of a communist party that, uh, frankly, is extremely ugly when you look at the consequences. And it was very noticeable for me to see things like uh, street people, homeless people in China, and a real reminder uh, of just how awful the underside of uh, Chinese economic development is. Professor McNally, uh, do you see any indications of how workers themselves are, are organi- or, or citizens generally are organizing uh, in their own interests, uh, more along the lines of uh, the conventional workers' movements? Well, there are signs, but there are also very specific characteristics to it. And by that, what I mean is this. There are a lot of strikes in China. Workers are not only striking, and when they strike, you're often talking about thousands and thousands of workers who come out of a complex of factories and go on strike, fight the riot police, and so on. So they're very militant, these strikes. And they are highly successful in case after case they are winning quite substantial wage gains, for instance. But the government repression is such that they have not been able to create much of an organized independent workers' movement. Independent unions are still illegal, and while there are activists who have created underground networks in which workers and working class uh, organizers are clearly in touch with one another. They have to be very, very careful about that. They need to stay below the radar. These are very secret kinds of networks that they create. But then you will see the results when uh, these strikes happen. Very often in the strikes, there will be a couple of spokespeople who know they're going to go to jail afterwards. They know they're going to get two months or three months in jail. And they've accepted that as a cost of the organizing that they're doing. And so, uh, and of course, these people are very much protected by their workforce. When they come back, the other workers make sure they find jobs and, and that sort of thing. So uh, that's one side of it, the, the working class strike activity. But also we're seeing in other parts of China a big wave of land struggles, because one of the things that Uh, municipalities have done is to raise their revenues by selling off land uh, to foreign multinationals and to uh, local developers. And very often, they simply push poor people off uh, the land in towns on which they had lived, or they um, expropriate their farmland from them. And quite often, there's a lot of payoffs going on. Corrupt Communist Party officials who are involved in selling off the land to developers for big real estate projects or uh, shopping malls and that sort of thing. But this is producing, uh, as I say, a whole wave of land protests. And most recently, uh, really an insurrection by about 3,000 people in the uh, town of Wukan, and this went on for weeks. Uh, it reached its peak after one of the organizers of the land protest was taken into police custody and died there. And his family members who saw his body afterwards could see the signs of the physical beating that he had taken. 
the police tried to claim it was a heart attack, and the family publicly denied that story. Professor McNally, I think we're probably going to have to leave it there, but uh, I want to thank you very much for sharing those uh, impressions with us. No, it's my pleasure, Michael. Good talking to you. It's always great to hear from you. Bye-bye. And that was David McNally. He's a uh, professor of political science at York University and one of the world's leading Marxist scholars. The long-awaited report by economist Don Drummond, commissioned by Ontario's McGuinty government, has caused a stir not only in Ontario, but across Canada. He argues that if the province is to eliminate its deficit by 2018, it will have to introduce a level of spending restraint that, as he told reporters Wednesday, would be, quote, unprecedented in the post-war period in Canada, unquote. To achieve that, Drummond and the three others on his panel want the government to cut back spending on everything from health care to education to welfare to justice. To analyze the Drummond report for alert listeners, we have Tom Wolcombe on the line from his home in Toronto. Tom Wolcombe is, has a PhD in economics and is the national affairs columnist for Canada's largest circulating newspaper, the Toronto Star. Welcome to Alert Radio, Tom. Hi. Okay, so first off, uh, could you maybe uh, outline the urgency for Ontario to get its budget in balance uh, within the next half dozen years or so? Well, it's a d- debate as to whether or not it's urgent. Don Drummond thinks it's urgent because he argues that the Ontario should balance its budget so that it doesn't add, keep adding to its debt after 2018. Ontario's debt now is relatively low, particularly as a proportion of of uh, gross domestic product. That's the measure of the entire economy, entire provincial economy. But uh, Drummond argues that if you want to avoid a kind of Greece-style scenario, you have to get it down fast. And there's some debate over whether that's correct, whether his argument for the need to get the deficit down by 2018 in, within six years is correct or not. Could you uh, maybe give us uh, a, a, an idea of how life would be, for ordinary uh, Ontarians, would be affected if these, uh, if the government should adopt the cuts as recommended by the Drummond Report? Well, he goes through a number of things. He suggests for example, in in the in the area of uh, drugs for older people in Ontario, there's a drug plan that that a provincial drug plan that people who turn 65 belong to, and it's it's there it's universal. It is weighted a bit to those with low income, but it it funds pretty much everybody unless you're very high income. He would want to get rid of that. And uh, if there were any drug program at all, have it entirely means tested. So that's one example. And he wants to uh, to get rid of uh, Drummond would get rid of full day kindergarten in Ontario, and he would also get rid of just about all the people who work in schools who are not teachers. He wants, I think, something like ten thousand non-teaching staff who work in schools eliminated, and that includes a 
number of kinds of people, including librarians and and uh, special education teachers, as well as janitors and secretaries. Mm. Now, the effect of all of it, he wants, if you're a public service worker, he would want uh, your pension reduced. The effect of all of this is to remove money from the economy, and then Drummond would see about $30 billion <coughs> excuse me, being removed from the Ontario economy in the final year of its cuts, which is 2018. And these things all have ripple effects, because there are an awful lot, about one in every four people in Ontario work in the public sector. And if you are cutting back in the public sector, that affects an awful lot of people, not just in terms of the services they receive, but in terms of the jobs overall. So there's a real employment effect on this. And that may be where people are, are end up being affected the most, as well as the specific cuts. But let me give you a, a, um, perhaps a more minor example. In Ontario, and I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's the same where you are, a lot of kids have to be bused to school, particularly rural kids. Well, Drummond would have parents have to pay the bus fare for them to get from their home in some, let's say, rural Lucknow to the school where, where they're going. That doesn't exist right now. So there are a number of very specific kinds of charges that he would level that don't exist right now and a number of very specific cuts that he would make. But as I said, I think the, the where people might feel the heat the most is is in the straightforward pulling of all of that money out of the economy, which is already moderately weak. My calculation is, and it's a pretty rough calculation, that the unemployment rate, which is now about 8% in Ontario, would go up to about 11% into double-digit territory. That's, that's quite high for this problem. Mm-hmm. I understand there are about 362 uh, recommendations. Um, uh, I was wondering, uh, among the reforms, uh, which ones would you consider, if any, would you consider interesting and worth pursuing? Well, it's not that the recommendations themselves are necessarily bad. The, the, the odd thing about this report is that there's no, is, although he has a figure about how much money he wants taken out in total, there's no notion of how much any individual recommendation he makes would save money. Well, let me give you an example of things that make sense. And they've been talking about, and they, people have been talking about in, in Ontario and in other provinces in Canada for a long time. He talks about about, uh, for example, having uh, changing the way medicine is practiced so that doctors do end up not having to do many of the things that they do now, and those chores, if you like, or those tasks can be taken over by people who are cheaper, like nurse practitioners or pharmacists or other kinds of, of medical professionals who aren't as highly paid as doctors. And this kind of argument, I don't I think it's not a bad argument. It's been around for a long time and various governments have attempted to move in this direction. But it's not clear that it will save how much money it will save, even if even if even if it, we go ahead with it. And these kinds of reforms are difficult to do because there are a lot of vested interests involved. So those are there, there's a number of things that he suggests that I think are, I personally think, are probably good ideas. But 
and I'm not sure that that if they're done right, they'll save a whole lot of money. They might save some. But his ultimate aim, I think the ultimate aim of the exercise, was to save a whole lot of money, and that's the real problem. And it's doing the opposite. Well, um, what do you think, given what you know about the McGuinty government, uh, what, which of the recommendations uh, are you anticipating they're most likely to reject, and which would they be most likely to accept? Well, they've already said they're rejecting his, his idea of getting rid of full-day kindergarten. They ran on that in, the last, in, uh, in, uh, in an election, and so it's too embarrassing for them to turn around on that. So they're saying they, they would definitely will not do that. And the others, I'm, I'm not really sure. I don't know what, um, what the McGinty game plan is in this. I think in part what the role of Drummond was to soften up the voters so that, so that the government could say, gosh, we didn't know any of this was going to happen. We didn't know things were that bad. I guess we won't be able to do everything that we promised to do, with some exceptions, I think, junior kindergarten one of the exceptions. So he provides a certain amount, I think, in the, in the, best, in the best possible world for the government, he provides a certain amount of, of cover. What they're actually going to go with, I think, comes down to the politics of the situation. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, he, Drummond recommends, and this isn't necessarily a stupid idea at all, and, and, and again, we don't know how much money it would save, but there are two head offices for the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission in Ontario. One's in Toronto, and one's in Sault Ste. Marie. The one in Sault Ste. Marie is there really just to create jobs in Sault Ste. Marie. And so Drummond recommends that one of them be shut. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to shut the Toronto one, because that really is the real headquarters. But it doesn't, also doesn't make a lot of political sense to shut the Sault Ste. Marie one because the, the Liberals hold the seat. And it would be a problem there, a political problem. So it will be interesting to see what they do with something, even on that level. It's a fairly minor, minor story, but even on that level, it will be interesting to see how they handle it. I think, they've got, I think they will ultimately deal with this by going through the politics. The easiest things to do politically are to attack public service, either wages or benefits or pensions, because public servants aren't particularly popular among people who are not public servants. So that, politically, they will find the easiest thing to do. Some of the other stuff, um, for example, I mentioned the drug benefits for seniors. It will be interesting to see how they, they handle that, because that's a, that's a politically difficult problem. Well, Tom, we uh, really appreciate that analysis, but I think we're going to have to leave it there. <laughs> so, uh, but thank thank you very much uh, for sharing those perspectives with us here at You're Alert. Welcome. Take it easy. Thank you. Yep, bye. I've been speaking with Tom Walcom. He is a PhD in economics and the national affairs columnist for Canada's largest circulating newspaper, the Toronto Star. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon. And today, three very, very political, political songs written by one of the most poignant and political writers in the history of North America, and that person is Buffy St. Marie. I saw her the first time at the 1964 Newport Folk Festival. I think I was 17 or 18 years old, and she came on the stage and blew the entire 
audience away with the bluntness of her terminology and the clearness of her thought. Here she is with Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Indian legislation's on the desk of a do-right congressman. Now he don't know much about the issue, so he picks up the phone and he asks advice of the senator out in Indian country. Darling of the energy companies Who are ripping off what's left of the reservations huh. I learned a safety rule I don't know who to thank Don't stand between the reservation and the corporate bank They'll send in federal tanks It isn't nice but it's reality Bury my heart in
Buffy St. Marie singing Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and every time I hear that song, I think about Leonard Pelche rotting away in the U.S. jail. We should all send our good thoughts to him. Buffy St. Marie has a way of being really clear with what she says, and uh, I love her songs. I always have, and I've always been inspired to listen to her and to pay attention to the issues that she brings up. Here she is with Now That the Buffalo's Gone. You have held your head high And told all your friends Of your Indian claim Proud good lady And proud good man Your great-great-grandfather From Indian blood sprang And you feel in your heart For these ones Oh, it's written in books And in songs that we've been mistreated and wrong. Well, over and over I hear the same words from you, good lady, and you, good man. Well, listen to me if you care where we stand and you feel you're a part of these ones when a war about Uncle Sam Or are you still taking our lands A treaty forever George Washington signed He did, dear lady He did, dear man And the treaty's being broken by Kim's or Dam And what will you do for these ones Oh, it's all in the past you can say But it's still going on here today The government now wants the Iroquois land That of the Seneca and the Cheyenne It's here and it's now, you must help us, dear man Now that the buffalo's gone Now that your big eyes are finally opened Now that you're wondering how must they feel Meaning them that you've chased across America's movie screens Now that you're wondering how can it be real That the ones you've called colorful, noble and proud in your school propaganda they starve in their splendor you've asked for my comment I simply will render my country is of thy people you're dying 
great superstition You force us to send our toddlers away To your schools where they're taught to despise their traditions Forbid them their languages Then further say that American history Began when Columbus set sail out of Europe and stressed that the nation of leeches that's conquered this land are the biggest and bravest and boldest and best. And yet, where in your history books is the tale of the genocide basic? country's birth of the preachers who lied how the bill of rights failed how a nation of patriots returned to their earth and where will it tell of the liberty bell as it rang with a flood over kins of mud and a brave uncle sam in alaska this year My country, tears of thy people, you're dying. Hear how the bargain was made for the West with her shivering children in zero degrees. Blankets for your land, so the treaties attest. Oh, well, blankets for land is a bargain indeed. And the blankets were those Uncle Sam had collected from smallpox disease, dying soldiers that day. And the tribes were wiped out. And the history books censored A hundred years of your statesmen Have felt it's better this way Yet a few of the conquered Have somehow survived Their blood runs the redder Though genes have been paled From the Grand Canyon's caverns To Craven's sad hills The wounded, the losers The robbed sing their tale From Los Angeles County To upstate New York The white nation fattens While others grow lean Oh, the tricked and evicted They know what I mean My country, tis of thy people You're dying Just crumbled, the future just threatens our lifeblood shut up in your chemical tanks. And now here you come, bill of sale in your hand, and surprise in your eyes that we're lacking in thanks for the blessings of civilization you've brought us, the lessons you've taught us. The ruin you've wrought us Oh, see what our trust in America's bought us My country, tis of thy people you're dying Now that the pride of the sires receives 
charity Now that we're harmless And safe behind laws Now that my life's To be known as your heritage Now that even The graves have been robbed Now that our own chosen way Is a novelty Hands on our hearts We salute you, your victory Choke on your blue, white and scarlet Hypocrisy Pitying the blindness That you've never seen That the eagles of war Whose wings lent you glory They were never no more Than carrion crows Pushed the wrens from their nest Stole their eggs Changed their story The mockingbird sings it It's all that she knows Ah, what can I do? Say a powerless few With a lump in your throat And a tear in your eye Can't you see that their poverty's profiting you? My country, tis of thy people you're dying. My country, tis of thy people, they're dying. And before that, now that the buffalo's gone, two very great political songs by Buffy St. Marie. This is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik, Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valdi. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.